Good morning. This is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Friday the 17th of April and we are still in lockdown and we are likely to be for some time as the lockdown was extended yesterday until review on May the 7th. That's another three weeks of it. But there was other news at the press conference yesterday with scientists suggesting uh, that they had the first tentative evidence that the rate of infection was dropping to one or below, though the lockdown measures uh, needed to continue. They stressed uh, that this was to avoid what has now become the thing widely dreaded among all governments in Europe, a rebound, a second wave of infections, which then rise up and peak at just the wrong moment and force another hard clampdown and further economic shock. As we know from all of the polling being conducted at the moment, the public are behind it. 91% of British people support keeping the lockdown in place longer. And that is a truly astonishing number one I can't think of for any other policy measure in my lifetime or indeed in the history of polling. The support for the government remains high as well, hovering at 50% or over. That too is pretty rare in British politics in recent memory, though I think neither surprising nor unexpected during the heights of an emergency. Those are certainly the two facts on the ground which face any opposition in the country, the terrain which lies in front of us. I asked very briefly yesterday that question then, what does Keir Starmer think that he's doing? I said I found it very difficult to figure out exactly what he thinks his strategy is, especially in terms of how it's being communicated. And I think there's a danger from those on the left of the Labour Party who are feeling sore, justifiably sore and smarted at the moment and who are weary from spending five years of being painted by the press and by significance of the Labour Party itself, by its apparatchiks, by its bureaucracy, by its nomenclatura, as arrayed in wild lunacy, sinister wreckers, incomprehensible cuckoos in the nest. They're not human. They ought to be destroyed. They're not human. That sometimes leads to people thinking of Starmer as the leader of some kind of right-wing coup within the party. And I think that's wrong analytically, but also wrong tactically because acting from injury here risks actually driving the leadership of the party further to the right. There's a mistake sometimes made on the left to think that if you're not succeeding the key must be to ever more loudly and ever more abrasively argue uh, that you think things are going wrong and that will make someone listen to you. I don't think that actually works in this scenario. I think uh, I understand the temptation though and there are certainly times we should cry blue murder. In this case though I think it's more useful to try to see what Starmer thinks he's doing and why, and to do so relatively generously. One way, one one place to start with that is exactly with those figures, the massive government support and near unanimous popular support for the continuation of the lockdown. In the case of the Labour Party, the popular perception, not untrue, that it's been and still continues to be completely riven by a civil war. So why then does Starmer seem to be tra- stressing so hard the need for a government exit strategy? Well, One is that he thinks the British electorate don't like in an emergency something that looks like finding fault for fault's sake. That means he's trying to be famously constructive, while also, at least implicitly, trying to highlight one consistent failure of this government, which is that it seems incapable of doing any planning for the next phase of the crisis. And that failure of planning is very clear in February and March. And because of that, because of that failure of planning, the unwillingness to make decisions, many have died who need not to have died, though he only, again, seems to make that point implicitly. Now, this is a bit of a high wire act, and to my mind, it's a risky one, but it's one that I guess acknowledges the public appetite. But here is my fear about it. Process. One of the great failures of the Labour Party's Brexit policy, if you remember that, it was only in recent memory, uh, was the way that it's, it's focused on process 
rather than politics. It talked a great deal about the way the the way the party would do things, how carefully it would sit on the fence, promising a fair but perhaps somewhat interminable process, not unlike its leader, leadership election, and rather than talk about a clear end state, for instance, having got Brexit done and the sunlit uplands of freedom and independence, etc. doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. Uh, it was a bit like bringing a chocolate teapot to a gunfight, and I worry about the same mistake repeating itself here. Nonetheless, Starmer isn't wrong to think that at some point soon, the real battleground is going to be how, where, and in what way things reopen and that the danger is going to be that the party of business, that would be the Conservative Party, uh, is going to want to slam things open in a dangerous way and pay for that reopening and state intervention during this period uh, by slamming back any advances made in broadening social support uh, and invoking the spectre of austerity. So that question is how to exit the crisis in a kind of pro-social rather than simply pro-boss manner. I think he's right too to talk about, for instance, deeply regressive and unequal effect that closed schools have with middle-class parents educating their children at home quite comfortably and others well having to juggle quite a lot more Uh, the question is or will be soon how to reopen things in a safe and non-destructive way that's also true as much for people who teach in schools for instance rather than the than just the pupils so i understand that he sees that coming and is thinking about how to actually move into the opening created by that question when it comes But a note on public opinion, popular opinion of the way the government is handling the crisis won't move without some actual movement on the opposition's part. I don't think you get to a place where you can talk about what's wrong with the way the government will reopen things unless you highlight the obvious and pretty terrible failings right now, not least on testing uh, and on personal protective equipment. That issue is on the table right now. And, you know, it turns out it's also the right thing to lead on as a simple matter of justice. But he got a sharp lesson in what it's like being leader of the Labour Party in the past week anyway. uh, Though his comments on all of this did mention PPE and did mention the schools question, all that got actually reported was Starmer wants an exit strategy, a headline which I think looked pretty absurd given the context. Turns out the press, not your friend on this. I've said before I find Starmer hard to read, but I thought this comment on the BBC's otherwise pretty mind-numbing coronavirus newscast was interesting. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, um, I really hated selling myself into the membership and I much prefer um, having to take, you know, leadership decisions as leader of the Labour Party. But you hated so, the campaign. Um, I'm much more comfortable. At, uh, I'm, I'm much more comfortable on this than I am in the, in the campaign. But, you know, we've had difficult decisions because coronavirus now frames everything um, in terms of, you know, how we conduct ourselves. And the whole approach I've taken coronavirus, saying we're constructive opposition, we'll agree with the government um, and we'll say so. Um, that's, you know, Keira, that Keira, is Keira, a different be... kind of opposition because of the circumstances that we're in. Kira, I want to be a constructive podcast host and say, did you just say that, that you hated having to sell yourself to the membership? Is that because, I mean, what, what, what do you mean? What? Do you not like the membership or is it that you don't like the kind of the salesman bit? Oh, no, I didn't say I didn't like... No, what I don't like is selling myself into the membership. This constant, um, you know, for all of our selections, it's the same in all political parties, you've got to go round selling yourself into the membership. um, Oh, so you just find that all a bit awkward. facing the country. But what what are you going to do when it comes to a general election? You're doing hustings... Yeah, I know, but it is. But you're, it's different because you're in your own party and you're up against colleagues, um, okay. and very good colleagues who you like. Um, and it is a very odd thing to do. So I'm 
very glad that that part of it is over, I have to say. Now, that suggests he sharply prizes unity within the party and how essential he thinks it is. And it perhaps suggests he's the kind of politician he's much more comfortable trying to lead, trying to turn his country to how the country might be run, than really setting out a stall among his own ranks, recognising the divisions in his foundations, or even contesting ideas about what the Labour Party should be and should be for and how it should operate. As ever, I think, for me, the question is unity on whose terms and for what and what the party is really for. That question is brought into very sharp and really quite miserable focus by the now very famous leaked dossier. There are, as a little birdie tells me, all sorts of legal letters flying around on this, so I'll limit my comments to the general rather than read out a 12-hour list of every bastard at the top of the Labour Party. And what it shows, I think, other than the abuse, the unprofessionalism and some extremely dodgy behaviour, is that there is a professional clique at the top of the Labour Party, uh, largely funnelled, uh, through student politics and the party's hard right, who treat uh, who treat jobs uh, within it not as matters of political service, but as confirmation that the party is their personal property uh, and that it belongs to them, and that any elected leadership to their left, which by the way is pretty much all of the membership and even ninety percent of the PLP, are interlopers to be largely disregarded and expected to leave sooner rather than later. Many of those in the report, of course, are gone from their positions at the top of the party, though they remain members, but their stay-behind network is certainly still all over the party's regional bodies and a local level. Uh, One thing that the left perhaps can and should be demanding is that this dossier isn't kicked into the long grass through an inquiry and that the inquiry doesn't focus just on who leaked it or even that the individual behaviours are bad I think everyone agrees with that, even people uh, you might consider otherwise not friend to the to the left of the Labour Party, but looks at the structures which put those behaviours into place and enabled them in the first place. Uh, those structures are still very much in place in the Labour Party. It might be a strange time to think about the party in a crisis like this one, but the truth is there couldn't be a better time to think about party reform. There will be a whole parliamentary term until the next election, and the political opportunities on pretty much anything else are quite limited right now. But isn't this just navel-gazing and party process? To a degree, yes. I certainly wouldn't want activists to waste significant time on it, but it's because I don't want activists wasting their time that it's important. If you just plaster over the cracks and pretend there's nothing to see here, eventually the wall behind it is going to collapse. If you actually try to construct a party which doesn't frustrate and undermine its membership, well, that might even be useful. And funnily enough, it's one thing that Starmer is quite suited for. He is after all, well-experienced in reforming large organisations. And a promise of root and branch reform of the party might be the one thing, maybe just the one thing, that would win him almost unanimous and enthusiastic support and consent from nearly every part of it. Something to think about anyway. Well, 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 two naughty, nasty little children gone. All right, so if you keep an eye on British politics, you might hear the occasional contrast with New Zealand, where its PM, Jacinda Ardern, is compared rather favourably with Boris Johnson in what appears from a distance like both a more decisive and at least vaguely pro-social stance, including stressing that deaths of thousands of citizens were too high a price to pay for herd immunity. But what's really going on? with the response in New Zealand. Good morning, James. It's uh, Hugh calling in from Aotearoa, New Zealand, from Auckland, Um, just responding to your call out for international um, stories. We are in the technical global south, but obviously economically we're not in the global south. 
I thought I'd snappily call this Dispatches from the Soft Left. Um, so we're in a um, level four lockdown, so Jacinda excellently made a four level system. I've been in level four for three weeks and it's looking increasingly likely that on Wednesday the 22nd of April at 11.59pm we'll come out of level four and move to level three. Uh, I think they're announcing today what that looks like specifically for businesses. Um, but there'll still be significant restrictions. Um, her whole policy was go hard, go early, which I think is another example of her excellent oratory, um, which I'll talk a bit about later. But yeah, we've seemingly done quite well. We're in single digit deaths. Um, people have been pretty, pretty compliant. Um, one of the nationwide things here, we didn't have pots and pans and balconies, but we had people hiding teddy bears in windows for kids to find on their walks out which was pretty cute. Um, we're subject to the, to the same cultural phenomena around the world. We have the same reactionary radio talk show hosts calling this all hysteria. We have our own rogue band of academics who've formed a website called COVID Plan B. They've co-signed a letter basically saying we've gone too far. It's all nonsense. Um, There's a, a few really good rebuttals. Basically, they've cherry-picked data. They're insisting that Australia, which is an, an anomaly because they have quite loose restrictions and low deaths, but they're sort of basing it as on um, that um, rather than looking at the whole. And they include in their cohort a public health doctor who believes in low carb, high fat diets. So he's obviously a tool. And that actually makes me think that I think we do need to know everyone's ideological context, even so-called objective scientists like, you know, raw people and People need to be clear about if they think that, like these people are basically saying, you know, we need to let a few old people die, but they should just make that argument rather than try and hide it. Um, what's been troubling me personally the most, I suppose I have, I've had the luxury of being on a wage subsidy um, for a job I've not been able to do for four weeks, for three weeks, four weeks. Um, so I'm at home getting my part-time wage subsidized. My business has been really good. I work for a, a vegan burger restaurant. Um, um, so yeah, I've been feeling the personal productivity stress. I'm uh, involved with the XR group out here, so kind of been thinking, how can we best use this time? Um, doing, doing a deep dive into social movement research and stuff, which has been really useful, but definitely feeling that sort of neoliberal stress of must spend quarantine time improving self. Um, and then more widely been trying to figure out what we need to build a strong socialist society here. The left is quite weak actually, despite we have eight Green Party MPs who are in a supply agreement with the Labour coalition government. Um, but we've got no professional media, really like you guys at Navarra or Tribune. No Green New Deal group pushing for that. Weak trade unions without the sort of signs of resurgence that you've had in the US and the UK. Um, and yeah, we have, I suppose, Jacinda, everyone's saying how great she is, um, which is good. She's like, think she's, you know, she's like a Barack Obama style leader with incredible oratory. Um, politically, she's actually been quite shit. They botched a capital gains tax, decided not to do it. They've got no real significant climate um, policy. She called it a nu our nuclear moment. Child poverty has stayed the same. That was her, she took personal responsibility for that. They had a failed house building program. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose the emphasis on is on a green response. Um, but they're talking about that being 
billions in infrastructure and they're obsessed with this term shovel-ready projects. And most of the shovel-ready projects are fossil fuel infrastructure, so roads. Kiwis absolutely love their cars. Um, so there's a whole heap of road widenings um, set to go, which was a disappointment when, when they released this big infrastructure package in January. Um, there are, I mean, to be honest, it was politically pretty smart. They basically came into power in 2017, put all of the previous national government's infrastructure projects on hold, reviewed them, and then in January, when it's in the polls in January, National was actually ahead. They basically decided to pursue lots of National's road building projects, totally parked their tanks on the National's lawn. National just did not know how to respond. But ultimately, a lot of those projects are, you know, building the single road state highways into four lanes, um, you know, making roundabouts, um, things like that, rather than expanding light rail in Auckland or Wellington or building a rail line from Whangarei in the north down to Auckland, um, or even extending a line south of Auckland to the cities in Upper North Island. Um, so yeah, Greenpeace are leading a green COVID response. So just been trying to see where we can fit in, but it's kind of been making me think a lot that imagining a crisis intersecting of, you know, food, crop failure, maybe there's been some drought here, the crop failure and, you know, wheat crops fail, some drought. We're actually in a severe drought at the moment. The reservoirs are 52%. Then imagining a cyclone coming through, imagining some power cuts and thinking, actually, I'm not sure civil society is as resilient or would be as resilient as it is now. Or even if this was something like Ebola where everyone would just be shitting their pants about getting it. Um, so just trying to think about how we build these institutions, which I hear everyone talking about is what we need to do. Trying to think about what they look like. Um, but yeah, that was my dispatches from the soft left. Um, hope you're going well, James. Really enjoy the burner. Keep it up. My thanks to Hugh for that quick flash into politics there in New Zealand as ever. Do get in touch with me if you're listening from abroad. I want to hear how it's shaking out where you are. You can get me as ever at james at navaramedia.com. All right, a few small things. What kind of capitalism will emerge from the other side of this crisis? Laurie McFarlane has a long and deeply interesting essay up on open democracy where he outlines what he calls authoritarian capitalism with various elements of state-led compulsion and direction outside the normal operation of the standard compulsions of the labour market. There's lots in there that's deeply interesting and perhaps which outlines a change which had already begun, but which might be accelerated by the coronavirus. I'll pop a link to that in the notes. We'll try to speak with Laurie about it next week. Uh, trouble is brewing in Europe. Macron is pushing harder and harder on common debt issuance in order to finance the recovery, especially in Italy and Spain, according to Need. This sets him on something of a collision course, at least nominally, with Germany and the Netherlands. Macron warns of populist exploitation and stresses the EU as a political project. He calls economics a moral science and warns that failure to agree on such a fund uh, would risk triggering the collapse of the Eurozone and also, he says, of the European idea. Matt, ha Matt Hancock, he of badge and app fame and who also happens to be health minister, faces the Health Select Committee today for an interrogation. Now that's chaired by Jeremy Hunt. You have big Tory rivalries going on there. There are serious and difficult questions for him to answer over failures in his promises on testing, which is nowhere near what he promised 
uh, as well as the crisis in care homes, lack of PPE there. Perhaps they could also ask about the story in the New York Times, which says the government has spent $20 million on tests, which don't work. In answers to that, look out for how heavily Hancock shifts to blame China, which may tell us something about the blame game that's to come. In just a few hours, you can catch me talking with Will Davies, Professor of Political Economy at Goldsmiths, on many of these issues, what transformations this might force in capitalism, the politics of the lockdown, and how this crisis will shape the next few years of our politics as a whole. That's on Resonance FM at 1pm and in your Navarra Media feeds very soon after. But that is it for the week. Do try to have a weekend of some kind and maybe even try to turn off the constant drip feed of coronavirus news and propaganda. And if you're wondering what you can and can't do under lockdown, well, there's new police guidance out, so I'll pop that in the notes to the show, just in case you encounter an overzealous Bobby when you leave the house. Otherwise, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, and yes, don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner, and I'll see you on Monday. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.